here on the Wide Angle Podium Network, the Honest Bicycle Program is supported by Health IQ, which is a life insurance agency. Health IQ has exclusive rates for health-conscious people. They crunch numbers on athletes and use unique models to offer physically active people lower rates on life insurance. So to learn more, go to healthiq.com slash honestbicycle. You can learn more about what they're about, and you can get a free quote on life insurance. That's healthiq.com slash honestbicycle. We're grateful to have their support, so go check them out. Okay, now... All right. right. Yeah. Good job, team. Sweet. (laughs) I think that worked. I have little bars going sideways. Bars are going sideways. Why are they sideways on it? It's like... uh... I don't know. Are your bars getting pitted so pitted? Oh my god, I don't uh, know what any of this means. You have to, was... you have to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are also, when we talk about cross, you're not allowed to say cross is coming. Oh really? <laughs> oh shit. I don't okay. know. That's because uh, it's already that... here, Dan. It's already no, here. No, no, it's been no, no, August no. for September like three 1st, weeks. September 1st. There is a hard and fast rule. Uh, I've got some bad news about this upcoming weekend for you i i've heard no, but i really does respect not count this as cyclocross that counts as short track mountain bike racing on cross bikes all right sure fine <laughs> sorry <laughs> again hate to break it to you <laughs> all right well okay fair enough so all right ladies and gentlemen let's not beat around the bush too too much this is the honest bicycle program i'm greg and uh there's matteo over there say hi matteo hi this is matteo and over on the other side of philadelphia for me is uh, uh you take it from here dan <laughs> i figured you were just gonna say my name but all right <laughs> <laughs> hey everybody it's dan chabinoff in west philadelphia oh west philadelphia born and raised i know i get that all the time <laughs> yeah i'm reason. sorry i'm really I, I i said that i said that and i regretted it immediately you know it's what like... it's fine it was a good it was a I... good show it had a good run they made some good jokes. <laughs> I had a friend who was from West Philadelphia, born and raised, and who was very cranky about <laughs> how uh, in the opening credits of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the playground where he spent most of his days was actually in North Philadelphia. I mean, the fact that it was even in Philadelphia is a win. Wait, that's true. I guess so. Why? Well, no, because, you know, it's, oh, it's oh, TV. Oh, right, the way people, I, sorry, I didn't <laughs> get that first. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. They usually don't film things where they're meant to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's like it could have been in, like, Vancouver or L.A., but it was actually in Philadelphia. And considering the show takes place in L.A., that means that they flew a camera crew and actors all the way to Philly just to... uh, Maybe that was in the pilot. I don't know. But, yeah. Anyway. The the honest discussion of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Is this the show? I think this is the show. Oh, yeah, definitely. This is, this the, is the show. This is the show. Ladies and gentlemen, if this is your first time listening to the Honest Bicycle Program, I assure you this is what's supposed to happen. <laughs> At least it's what normally happens, whether or not I it's mean, we can to. just do a really hard segue into the Vuelta if you guys want. Oh, Whoa, man. Not caught up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I just think we're watched... doing that this week. Teacher, I didn't do my homework. I just watched that stage literally as you guys were calling me. Oh, sorry <laughs> to interrupt. Um... I hear that uh, one, and that it was very exciting. So, spoil. Did you spoilers. just say r- 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 one so that we could edit in a name later? No, I know who won today, but you know, I was people get very cranky about spoilers. 
Although they're probably not going to hear this episode until several days have passed, and it really won't be. Yeah, I don't think there's a huge issue with podcast spoilers. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Well, <laughs> I mean, the that's only like... the only person we're not spoiling it for is Matteo right now, <laughs> which is fine. Like I, like I looked at the news, I just didn't really like process what happened or like pay attention to it. I like I like glanced at cycling news today, but that's the extent. I was also I've been I've been traveling for the long weekend. Um, and just got back like pretty uh, late last night slash early this morning. So I'm just I'm still like emerging from like the, and it was it was like the I'm emerging from my bike racing season essentially. It was sort of the last big travel weekend of the season for me. And suddenly I'm I've got my head picked up like out of the ground, and I'm like, oh, I don't really have to do anything for the next few weeks what's that like maybe i'll call up dan and see if he's free to go for a bicycle ride but uh cyclocross is imminent wednesday (laughs) (laughs) that's right you can only say (laughs) there's a certain phrase involving cyclocross that we're apparently not allowed to say but we can say cyclocross is imminent uh yeah we've we've got a packed agenda we i think i think before we get going well first of all by the way listeners um we we just kind of introduced dan like you should know who dan is i don't know if you want to give like the for people who don't know the capsule summary of of who you are and what you do um sure i started riding bikes uh over 10 years ago in new york city as a bike messenger got into riding gears uh got you know was a messenger for about eight years uh got into track racing got into road racing got into cross racing uh, got my cat one and a bunch of things started racing for richard Sachs for cyclocross did a bunch of red hook crits and you know 12 years later, here I am, a little bit burnt out on road racing, racing mountain bikes, and getting ready for my sixth season with the Richard Sachs cyclocross team. Yeah, you're the old hand at Richard Sachs, other than Richard himself now, aren't you? Yeah, it's kind of a weird feeling. (laughs) (laughs) It's also the longest I've spent on any team um, for racing, really. So it's... It's kind of an interesting place to be, in a sense. Cool. I was thinking about that recently, Dan, because it was like it was kind of, it was a pretty big deal when you joined the team. It was sort of a for for those of us who kind of all knew each other in the like <clears throat> stinky bike punk slash messenger slash alley cat scene in New York, and and you know for those of us who use that to get into uh, legit racing. You signing for that team was like a pretty big deal of like really making it, and it's funny to so you know suddenly look back and realize that all right, we're not necessarily spring chickens anymore. Like that was a good chunk of time ago. You you're you're sort of thoroughly into an elite career with half of a decade on that team. Yeah, let's let's put like air quotes around career, but sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it it's it's something. I mean, I've definitely I, I feel like it's funny because. I never quite feel like I've made it, but at the same time, I look back on it and I'm like, no, I've actually accomplished a lot of things a lot of people would have liked to have accomplished in bike racing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not to try to, I'm not trying to like measure myself against other people, but it's more a way to like 
keep myself from being too down on what I'm doing with my life and sort of being like, oh, no, no, I've actually, I've, there, there's things that I've done that are like well worth the amount of work and effort that I've put into it. Well, you know, I think, I think there's, in a way, what you're saying there is, is almost the definition of having a career, right? Where you're doing a thing and you think for a while, at some point, there's going to be this point where you've made it. And then eventually you realize like, oh, no, 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 no. I've got to fight for this the entire fucking time. Um, but it's worth it. So I'm going to keep fighting for it. You know what I mean? Like, that seems yeah. like It seems like that's like, quote unquote, real job is, you know, at least it is for me um, as well as like bike job. I mean, or at least for, you know, if you're, you know, you have a bike job. I don't have a bike job, but. Sure. I mean, that's bike yeah. racing in a nutshell, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it really is like, Dan, what you said, just I, I really related to that with my season racing, you know, UCI track races where I thought I thought I was like pretty damn good at bikes. And then I just spent the season essentially feeling like ineffectual, like completely ineffectual. And like these races were a little bit more than survival, but I couldn't do anything. Yeah, but from you the know? from the outside perspective looking in, you know, I have to say like what you're doing is impressive. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. I you know, like I couldn't do that. I couldn't get on a track bike and jump into a UCI track race and even you know, even hang in, much less, you know, be fighting for a top ten, you know, like in an in yeah. the omnium. So it's like it, it it's weird you know it's like bike racing is all relative you know it's like yeah technically one person wins the race but there's so many like personal you know little victories little storylines that are constantly happening within every bike race and it's like it's weird the sport definitely has this like you know everybody has a very personal relationship to it you know like there's there's very few people that are like in bike racing that are just like oh yeah like this is just something i'm good at and it pays the bills you know that's like yeah. a very there's very <laughs> few people for whom it is like that for most people it's like no i'm just like pounding my head against the wall trying to accomplish something and for some reason i'm enjoying the process yeah I, there's very few people yeah. i think for whom it is they are able to say this is something i feel like i'm good at <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I was just I was just talking with my coach about getting buddy tattoos that somehow communicate that bike racing giveth and bike racing taketh away. No, it's yeah. uh yeah. Well, okay, have, so let I me impose I have I sorry. Know. I just wanna I, I just wanna yeah. throw in one thing. Yes. I have it. this I have this I have an XY chart for bike racing. <laughs> Oh God! For a minute, I thought you said ex-wife, and I was really no, confused. no, no, X Y, X Y. There's a, it's, it's an X, it's an X Y chart, and, and on on the vertical axis, it's 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 um, it's actually not much of a chart. It's more of like a diagram, and it, you know the the regular storyline of like rags to riches, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's on one side it's rags, and then up top is riches, and then there's just a straight line to the to the other word that says rags so that's basically bike <laughs> racing it's like you you cir- you just circumvent the riches and go straight back to rags <laughs> excellent yeah. 
Pretty much. So I was I was going to impose um, some some order, some slight semblance of order on here because I want to keep going. Gavel, gavel, gavel. Gavel, gavel, gavel. No, it's great. It's great. But we do have um, some brief follow up from the last episode that we wanted to to get through. Um, before we uh, roll into what we're doing, I think I don't know, uh, Dan. I think you wanted to talk about Red Hook Crit maybe a little bit. Um, is that true? Yeah. Is that the crit, and you know, I think we wanted to talk about cross, but I did yeah, listen yeah. to your previous episode. So if you guys want to do the comments now, and uh, you know, I can maybe weigh in on a few things. But you know, excellent. Yeah. Well, we got a, a yeah. one kind of really long um, comment. I don't know, Matt, if you wanted to uh, read it. It's very thoughtful, and and I think it raised some good points about how we talked about it and and, and stuff. And I don't know if there's. Uh, Maybe we should have um, pulled out the. I'm looking at it now. It looks like a wall of text, so it might take a while to read. Maybe, maybe if we can pull <laughs> out the really important bits. But uh, I think that it's it's a really important thought, and we've got permission to share it and all that. So um, yeah, so yeah, so we got this terrific piece of of reader mail um, about our last episode, in, in which we talked about the Velo News piece about Josh Hartman, who's a really talented young track racer from Brooklyn, New York. Um, the the piece you know pointed out that he is a black kid from a poor neighborhood in a predominantly white sport, um, and we kind of chewed that over uh, a bit. Um, we also pointed out that uh, days after uh, Velo News published that Josh Hartman won an elite national championship in the team sprint, which is pretty terrific. So uh, we got this uh, we got this mail from a reader named Brandon, who writes, "Hey." Hot topic this week on the podcast, re-race and cycling. I really like the discussion you and Greg had. You addressed it to me. It's fine. Um, but I also wonder if maybe you guys weren't being just a bit contrarian about what Dreer wrote in his Velo News article on Josh. And as uh, me again, I, I pretty much agree. Like, we kind of, like, objected to some things that were written and then sort of agreed with later analyses. So mm-hmm. totally agree. Uh, and Brandon writes, a few things sort of pop out as important regards the uh, the argument about whiteness and privilege in cycling. I agree with your point about the New York City cycling scene and the diversity there, but like New York City itself, it's an exception to the rule as far as cycling goes in the U.S., and I would even say in the UCI Pro Peloton as well. Uh, I definitely agree with that. Having a relatively small number of exceptional people of color cyclists does not mean that cycling still isn't predominantly white, and that the bar for entry, especially in the U.S., is relatively high unless you have money. But I think there's something more fundamental in Dreer's writing that makes the piece a bit difficult to read, especially in relation to the shit in Charlottesville yesterday. Dreer, because he works for a global journalism corporation, has a predetermined narrative that he's using to frame the story. Poor black kid overcomes the dangers of the ghetto to become a successful cyclist despite the odds. Right, so it's important to consider who Dreer is writing for. I would imagine mostly affluent white folks. So in order to get those clicks, the story needs to convey a certain story that's simultaneously empowering to minorities as well as light in its critique of structural inequality that causes the situation where nowadays it's exceptional for black folks to become famous cyclists. While it's a really affirming narrative, it also frames Josh as the token black kid in a white sport without investigating why cycling is this way. And if we strip away all of the affirmative rhetoric about overcoming obstacles, what Dreer is really getting at is that cycling has a pretty recognizable problem with racism all the way up to the world floor. I'm going to pause here um, just to say that I think that's a really terrific uh, and and trenchant analysis um, that gets at not just how race and cycling is handled, but how race is handled in a lot of things. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and 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 I think that it, it's a good moment to make uh, my 
and, and I guess I could make it after the next paragraph, whatever. But to make my okay. kind of comment, or or I guess the the only response I have, which I think this is a really good point uh, in points raised and about our discussion too. Yeah, I was a bit contrarian, and I I want to uh, just preemptively apologize if it seemed like. Uh, what I was getting at was that, oh, actually, this isn't a big problem, right? Because um, if that's what it sounded like uh, I meant, it isn't what I think I meant to say, but I, I think it could easily come across that way. And that's that's my fault, right? So anyway, um, I only wanted in, in the discussion to recognize that uh, it, it seems like, as he says, actually, this is like a really great point in saying that... Uh, you know, he's conveying that, oh, you know, Josh is overcoming these problems without investigating why cycling is this way, right? So I think that people often will say, oh, yeah, you know, cycling is such a white sport and kind of shrug their shoulders and, and move on. Uh, and I think that's both like not super productive in the sense of not dealing with why cycling is super white or at least not doing anything active about it, uh, but also in kind of then seeming to not acknowledge that um, there are people of color in the sport and that they, and yeah, that they and I, yeah. And I think that the, the rest of what our reader wrote, it, you know, really gets at that, um, which is to say that, you know, Brandon said a little bit more about, um, you know, sort of seeing and hearing experiences of racism that people of color have in cycling. And I think that sort of what we get at with this is that um, like, yes, there's a problem with, with racism in cycling, um, along with everything else. Like, there's a problem with racism and, and everything. Um, but that that doesn't mean that, like... It's sort of like... Uh, what, I'm, what I'm getting at and what I'm groping for here is the difference between um, normal and, and common. No, wait, that's not it. Mm-hmm. Why don't you guys talk while I remember what I was trying to think about? Well, well, well uh, Dan, I mean, did you have any... Thoughts on that well, at all, or did you have anything you wanted to say about what we said last week? Or I mean, I think the reader comment is really great. Um, uh, when I was listening to the episode last week, I definitely felt like you were being a little contrarian, but I also, you know, listening to the entire episode, it was, like, obvious that it was not, uh, you know, it, I, I got what you were trying to say, and, you know, for me, my, my like, personal feedback on it was, Sort of that, like, you know, it's not an either-or thing. Like, it's not either we're pointing out all these people of color in the sport or saying that cycling is so white. Like, we can do both, right? Like, we can mm-hmm. we can simultaneously acknowledge that our sport has, you know, an issue with a high bar of entry, you know, like, we, you know, basically, like, if you look at where top-level cyclists are coming from and where people of color live, there's not a ton of overlap in those areas, you know, in the Mm -hmm. United States. I think, you know, obviously, like, socioeconomic backgrounds, there's probably not a ton of overlap there either, you know? So it's like, yes, the sport is definitely very, like, very, very white. Um, But at the same time... Present company included. Right, absolutely. But at the same time, you know, what we can do with that is not just say like, oh, cycling is so white and move on, but say like, oh, cycling is so white, but like, here are all these, you know, like, take the time to acknowledge the people of color that are racing and succeeding in the sport and, you know, also give them extra exposure and put them out there 
because you know like i think you know representation is super important to get more people of color in the sport because you know you have to be able to see yourself in the thing that you want to do for you to really want to do it right you know so it's like seeing other people of color succeeding in cycling is going to get more people of color involved right yeah yeah and there is the fact that this this you know it's so so common that stories about cyclists who aren't white are framed around you know the struggles they're dealing with with racism and that's an important story but if it's the only story that's being told is like well we we're always going to talk about you know the kind of uh, obstacles that they overcame and isn't that impressive and and it's like you know whereas a guy like tj van garderen is you know it's just talking about wow look at this promising young cyclist right uh well back you know back when he was a promising right, young right. Cyclist i mean it, it it's hard it's hard you can't you know it's like you don't want to ignore those things you also don't want to only talk about them. I think they are part right, that, of the story yeah. of every athlete of color. And I think every, you know, I'm sure every athlete of color in every sport has a story about that. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm sure all of them also want to tell their story of personal athletic struggle and triumph, This, right. which is the same as, you know, in many ways uh, as stories of other athletes, you know, and it's right. important to tell both both those stories and acknowledge both those stories i yeah. think yeah, that's the benefit uh, of more exposure right you have you have room for both those stories right i hope you know i hope so i mean i definitely it's like you know like i read this the story the story on josh and like it was really interesting and um you know i was at that race where he got hurt and like i remember the campaign to like help him and i remember you know dave the organizer of the crit like going to the hospital and you know and it's really great just to see him succeed um you know and to me that was like definitely the more that was to me the interesting part of the story because i you know i i had lost track of it at some point when he had recovered and i saw that he was back riding and like out and about but after that you know i didn't really hear much about what he was doing and it was like really kind of cool to just be like oh wait i know that kid he's on the homepage of Velo news what that's so cool <laughs> you know like that's uh, that's awesome yeah. but you know zoom in a little bit on the new york city scene and it's like i think yeah like it's it's true that new york city is definitely an exception to a lot of rules but it's like the reason why the scene is so diverse there is because there's like a really high percentage of at, you know, racers of color who are really, really successful. I would argue that like the best bike racers in New York City are people of color, and so there's so there's more like there's more younger kids getting into bikes there because there's like people of color racing and you know starting programs and and um, getting getting those kids out on bikes. You know, and here in Philadelphia, you know, I remember last episode you guys were talking about like uh, trying to think of this like uh youth program that i think maybe you guys thought didn't exist but it exists here in philadelphia it's called the cadence youth cycling foundation yeah and it's nice. it's great my friend taylor uh runs runs it and uh you know they have 
basically they get high school kids, they get them bikes from Fuji, which is uh, a local company. You know, they're based um, in this area. And, you know, there's the all-star team that goes to races and they had, you know, they had racers at the both the crits that were this weekend and they're starting their first ever cyclocross program. And, you know, it is like Philadelphia, like a lot of, you know, a lot of these kids are, um, you know, kids, uh, kids of color and it's, it's really great. Um, just, just to see them like get, get on bikes and learn how to pace line and then start to train with coaches and jump in their first races and have their first race successes. And it's, you know, it's awesome, but it's also, you know, like, hearing about it from Taylor, it's like they have so many things to overcome that like we don't even think about, you know, as bike racers, like like coaches will give them workouts to do, you know, I think they meet the all star team usually meets like I think twice a week or something like that, you know, and on, on their days off, they get workouts to take home. And it's like a lot of them can't really do the workouts because, you know, it's like, um, they just don't really know where to go ride to go do the workouts or like what the workouts are supposed to be like even um it's just really difficult for for somebody to like get intervals and then know a place to go do them you know it's yeah Yeah, like when we when we talk about barriers to entry we're probably not really talking about the cost of a bike we're talking about maybe everything else that might be going on in someone's life that can knock them out of participation in something extra like cycling or all this other like community knowledge that there could just be a, you know, a sort of a chasm in a lot. And that's though, I didn't express it well, a big part of what I got at was, was getting at with the contrarianness about the equipment, right? It's that the equipment is a pretty small people focus or or rather people focus on the equipment when there are like way bigger questions (laughs) and things like availability of, you know, whatever shared equipment or yeah, what else is going on in your life or, yeah, knowing where to go to do intervals or having time, you know, all these things. Um, or even you know, just not to mention travel. Yeah, or even know, just like explaining that. to your mom or your parents who, like, don't really follow cycling that you're, like, going to go dress up in spandex and go for a bike ride, you know? A lot of people still <laughs> view cycling as, like, a too. dangerous thing, you know? It's, like, not... Yeah. Especially in a city, especially in, like, an urban you know in a city center like philadelphia it's like people don't really think of cycling to get around even with the great cycling infrastructure that we have here it's like not you know it's right riding bikes for transportation is still in in often seen as like a i don't know not the thing that you're supposed to be doing do you know what i mean yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. totally yeah totally so we, we really appreciate having uh, our listeners chime in with such sort of well-thought-out um, responses to what we're talking about. And we, I think we definitely welcome uh, voices that aren't just ours in the conversation. So, you know, listeners, anything that you're interested in that we're talking about, feel free to email us at honestbikeprogram.com. Honestbikeprogram.gmail.com. Yeah, did I, I uh, sort of <laughs> missed some crucial... <laughs> did I just say honestbikeprogram.com? Yeah, you did. It's fine. Uh, yeah, that doesn't it's exist. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. Honest, honest bike program at gmail.com or, uh, you know, you can you can respond to us on Twitter either to the show's account or to our personal accounts. Just, you know, feel free to jump in the conversation yeah. here because we're the ones behind the microphone, but that's uh, doesn't have to stay that way. Yeah. 
All right. Um, so you mentioned, uh, you know, that that I think a lot of people, unfortunately, first uh, heard about Josh Hartnell because of the terrible wreck he was in at Red Hook. And this is a brutal and terrible segue, and I regret it now. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could, but but a lot of people, but 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 I'll bring it back around, right? Which is that a, a lot of the uh, talk about Red Hook has been about how stupid and dangerous, and you know it's not a real bike race, and look at this massive pileup of seventy dudes and and all that, and so I I think that um, I don't know, it might be a good time to to go and and defend. Red Hook, not that it necessarily needs defending, but uh, it seems like all too often in kind of more, I don't know, quote-unquote mainstream bike racing, that's sort of the story is Red Hook, this crazy-ass race where everything goes wrong all the time. I mean, it's definitely a narrative that's out there, um, and I think you're absolutely right that Red Hook doesn't necessarily need defending because at, at this point I think it is the most popular bike race in north america like and <laughs> yeah. that and that includes the amgen tour of california like <laughs> I, I i'm not kidding like i've looked at our social media stats on race day and the amount of eyeballs that that race gets is insane it's hundreds of thousands it's it's crazy how how popular and widespread it is so i will just leave that there but i will you know I think it's kind of, I don't know, it's, crashing is kind of part of bike racing, and I know that people like to look at the crit and be like, oh, you know, obviously all these terrible wrecks are happening because they're on track bikes with no brakes, and it's like, uh, it's a really, that's a really easy conclusion to come to, but it's just Mm -hmm. not true. You know, it's like, if you look at, you know, it's like, there's so many mass pileups in sprint finishes at the Tour, at the Vuelta, at the Giro, at like so many bike races. You know, one thing goes wrong when you're going all out and the whole field goes down. It happens constantly. It happens all the time in every bike race. But we've sort of like accepted that as part of the sport, you know? And so people aren't necessarily like, you know, people aren't sharpening their pitchforks and they're, you know, lighting their torches when it's like not, uh, you know, when it's something that they've grown accustomed to, so to speak. Grand tours are by far the worst offenders, actually, when it comes to massive pileups and sprints and whatnot. Like, even you'd think that, like, American pro crits would have giant yard sale, you know, field crashes, but that's not, that's not very common. You know what, though? I think that, I think that people consider what they're looking at now to be abnormal. And so every year in the Tour de France, there are crashes and there are uh, abandons and withdrawals. And everyone says, you know, you, you read the news during the first week of the Tour and everyone always says, oh my gosh, it's so dangerous this year because you have the GC contenders trying to get into the sprint so that they don't lose time. <laughs> you have all the young people who don't respect it. You have the Pro Conti teams who have a chip on their shoulder about the fact that they're not world tour teams, they're chopping everybody trying to get there. And I I remember that being particularly um, virulent in 2014, that people was just like, oh, this is just the crashiest, craziest, most injurious Tour de France ever. And I decided to like 
look like take every tour from the previous like 15 years and look at the attrition rate like day by day by day and it was normal and i think that people just see what's in front of them right now and when there's a crash they think like oh this is because of something happening right now rather than this is just what happens generally yeah i would i would definitely agree with that i mean it's like most of the you know the the like most famous crash from the red hook crit was probably last year it was during the start happened because a motor you know the pace moto stalled yeah which is a stupid thing to have happen and it was a mistake and every and and this is what i think sets red hook crit apart from pretty much any bike race is as soon as something like that happens the, mo- the the immediate thing is that everybody involved with the race, and I mean literally everybody because there's not that many of us. There's probably the the, sta- the permanent staff of the race that goes to all the crits across the world um, is maybe like 12 people. Everybody gets together and everybody's like, okay, what can we do to make sure this doesn't happen again? Like, how can we fix this? You know, and... The next, the next race in London, basically, you know, it was an obvious solution. It was have the motorcycle be rolling when they start, you know? That way it can't stall. Mm-hmm. It seems like a, you know, and it's a very small thing, but it's like, it, I, I really, I haven't been involved in that many races, in organizing that many races and working with directly with organizers as I have um, just recently with the Red Hook Crit, but it feels like a lot of times when crashes happen, they're not really evaluated in a way that, you know, the people don't really dig that deep into them. It's kind of like crashing is part of racing and you don't really, you know, it's like the same reason that like organizers still have those awful barriers with the feet that stick out. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's like, haven't Mm -hmm. we all agreed that those are a terrible idea yet? You know, like I think we've all agreed, but it's like you still see that at bike racing all the time. And it's like, why? Why are you guys? Why yeah, are I mean, you guys I, doing this? I, I've I've raced like weeknight training series on crit courses that have live traffic on them, and I've even raced blocked off courses that haven't been properly marshaled and have had cars like pulling onto them right in front of races. Let alone the issue of like you know low levels of marshaling because yeah, it's hard to get people to volunteer and wear you know a goofy vest and carry a flag all day where people just wander onto the course because they feel like right. It. Yeah. yeah, the the fact that the Red Hook crit in the first place is a completely closed course and a moto marshal like two is to its two credit not there's a moto mar- two moto there's marshals. a moto on the front of the field and a moto at there's actually two motos on the front of the field there's the lead moto and the, that drives about half a lap in front of the race that picks kind of warns people that are about to be lapped and then there's mm-hmm. the lead moto for the race that stays closer to the front of the race not mm-hmm. too close yeah, uh, we, yeah we should talk about it sometime but, but actually getting involved in putting on a little local race the, the greenfield criterion was eye-opening as far as controlling a race course you know it, it's uh yeah so these things do happen all the time and it's actually it takes hard work when you don't have a completely closed off course to keep terrible things from happening um so it, it's really great you know i mean this the fact that red hook i mean right it's a huge event it better right but but having a closed course, I mean, uh, it beats the hell out of the alternative and it's, it's already 
a big step above a lot of your local races that you've probably taken part in. I mean, it's a, it's definitely the best produced race that I've ever been a part of in any way, shape, or form. I mean, yeah. the like mm-hmm. just every 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 little detail from like the. I mean, there's a, there's a graphic design manual that comes with the crit, basically. You oh, know, it's like everything God, everything with the crit. There's it looks a certain way, it feels a certain way. Everything we put out, like all the event flyers, like every visual, you know, is thought about. Uh, and then yeah. and then you know, like just, here's another like safety example. You know, for instance, in London it rained. And we're doing this new qualifying format this year where we have heat races to qualify. And then the top riders from those heat races do a one-lap all-out time trial called the Super Pole to get the top 15, you know, to sort the top 15 starting spots on the grid. And Mm -hmm. because it was raining in London, you know, the organizers went around and talked to a lot of teams and were like, hey, we're thinking about canceling this for safety like what do you think you know and we had some riders that were like yeah absolutely cancel it we don't care and we had some riders that really wanted to do it and in the end we ended up canceling it and you know kind of putting those spots in in the order we thought they should go but just the fact that like it wasn't a unilateral decision and it was a conversation with the riders you know to me as a racer means a lot you know because i feel like it's pretty rare that like organizers kind of like go out of their way to make decisions with feedback from racers in mind it's it just it's not something that i've experienced in my racing career yeah so so i'm something i'm curious about now to move on from from safety a little bit is uh red hook is as popular as ever in and maybe like arguably more so since it's expanding and it's it you know i was just i just i just came to me i was just thinking like wait a minute the whole like fixed gear cultural scene is really kind of that that wave is mostly past i mean like in not in the sense that you know people are still riding fixed gears in the city like they're still everywhere like it's not like you know things aren't like uh, uh 2002 anymore right where no. it's only a few weirdos but the crest of that wave seems to have passed. You know, you won't, you don't have like the mash and like the macaframe of videos coming out every six months or whatever. Um, hey, I got those on DVD, man. Uh, <laughs> they make for great uh, roller workouts. I'm telling you. Uh, I don't. I don't have very positive feelings about those movies. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, and yet, yeah, Red Hook is huge. So, what is it like? It's it can't it's not just like the fixed gear freestyle and street cred anymore. Like it can't be. It's it's the Euro culture, man. Like the Euros picked up on it once Milan mm-hmm. got going and they just ran with it. I mean, they are taking it to a whole new level. There's you know, there's basically Italian pro teams that are essentially geared just about racing fixed gear criteriums. You know, it's like there's this whole influx of you know, recently retired world tour riders that are now doing basically doing a second career as fixed gear crit racers. You know, like Davide Vigano, who raced for Sky and Quickstep, won stages at the Vuelta, you know, got second in London to uh, People 14, who is currently on like a continental team in Italy, you know, and, you know, then you have like Francesco Kiki 
who won stages of California and like all these, you know, a lot of big, big races in the last 10 years. And now he's, you know, riding the whole Red Hook Crit circuit. Uh, you know, Ivan Rod- That's all, that's all like insane. Yeah. yeah. Not, not in a bad way. It just, my, like I'm constantly picking up my jaw when I see names on Red Hook Crit finish sheets that like I recognize from other places or when I watched uh, the, you know, the track world championships and the announcer was talking about someone's Red Hook Crit result. Like it's just the fact that it like leveled up to to that level of interest and intrigue is incredible. Yeah, it's it's really nuts and you know, I definitely it it definitely feels to me like the European uh, you know, something something over there clicked with those guys and they just uh, you know, I don't know what it is exactly. Like I've talked to a few guys and and for a lot of them it seemed like they were kind of over their road careers and they just didn't really want to do it anymore and for whatever reason this felt like new and exciting to them and they really wanted to give it like another full gas go basically and it's i mean it's awesome um but it i would say the majority of the peloton now is european um you know there's a huge italian presence but you know people are from all over and I would say the Americans are definitely not uh, not as large of a presence as they once were, like even, you know, four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, part of that also probably has to do with the fact that, you know, there's only one Red Hook crit in America, and it's the Brooklyn one. And then there's three races in Europe, which are, you know, for a lot of people are very easy to get to. You know, it's London. Uh, happened a few weeks ago barcelona is september 2nd um you know and then what you call it milan is october 14th you know and so like for people living in the eu that's like pretty easy travel wise and that european calendar actually is very tight yeah uh, yeah it, it's all like, within about a month yeah. um so i you know a lot of times i've i've some some of the staff just ends up staying in europe because it's you know, they're working, the logistics guys are working, like, way more full-time than someone mm-hmm. like me who's more on just the media team. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, right, you can, you can kind of, like, fly in and, and hang out for the, the week of the event, whereas everyone else is kind of, like, burning it at both ends. Right, you know, it's like they, you know, it's like the truck had to get loaded in London and someone had to drive it, you know, like, all that equipment had to get to Barcelona somehow, and then it has to be stored somewhere, and, like, it's... It's a logistical nightmare that I like. Am happy that I'm not a part of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, but you know, it's it's also just really rewarding to work with a crew of people that all so very very obviously care about the thing that they're working on. You know, and as someone that has had many like shitty shitty jobs, it's like this is the job where mm-hmm. I probably. For the amount of work that everyone does, we all probably get paid the least, but we all really, really love doing the work, you know, and we all yeah. really, really care about how it comes out. And it's like, you know, otherwise there's no way like it's just, you know, at, at Lon- in London, we were 
you know, the media team was all sitting at the office till three in the morning, making sure the correct results were formatted correctly. The website looked good. There was photos of the winners and the podium on the website. The recaps, you know, like were there, you know, within whatever, three hours of the race being over. It's like full results. Here's a brief summary of both the men's and the women's race. Here's the men's women winner, the women's winner, both podiums. You know, it's like you could just go to the website and immediately know what happened. You know, it's like... Which is how most events, like, it, it takes a lot of work to do that. But most events should do that if they're buying into this story that a bike race is a, a public spectacle, not just a thing for the participants to participate in. Right. And it's like, how many, you know, it's so hard, even with like Speed Week, which should be the thing that you know, is the thing that, like, Red Hook should be learning from. It feels like I can't... It's so hard to even get results posted on Twitter. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I can never find the race results. And sometimes the website isn't updated for months at a time, and it's like, you know, I hate to single them out, but it's it's not just them. It's like crit, crit organizers in the U.S. in general. It's like, you know, Dairylands and Intelligentsia. It's like all those races, it's like so hard to follow them. I feel if some of them are doing I, better. I will say this. I will, hold on. I, I will bad, say this but, about, I want to jump in yeah. here. I will say this about Dairylands is that I was shocked the first time I went and raced Dairylands. And like, while I was on my cool down ride from my first race, my phone blooped and it was the USA Cycling app notification saying results for a race that you're in have been recently updated and it was it was results for the race that finished less than an hour ago i mean so that's really cool that that side of it is that public you know like who's gonna see that that's the real question it's like i don't totally i guess you know it's like it is important that those results get up you know uploaded to usac you know but what's really the point of uploading results to usac it's to like it's like rankings and upgrade points so it's like if you're doing the whatever pro one two race you probably don't really care about that. It's like it's more important to you that those results get out into the public sphere. Also, USAC yeah. disclaims it, uh, official tracking of upgrade points. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, and but if but if you're a race trying to sell yourself, yeah, what what you sh- probably should be doing is telling stories to your audience and potential audience about the participants. And the Red Hook Crit does that really well by running a ton of media well before during and after the race about who are the participants what they've been up to and what they're trying to do today okay so let me let me actually run something by you guys because uh i got i got an email from dave today um you guys do you guys know the the red hook crit countdown like the rider countdown before the race yeah. Where we where we do like top ten men men and women before each race we kind of like do a preview it's not really yeah. You have them on Instagram and on the website. Yeah, it's not really meant as an indication of who we think is going to win the race because we try to highlight different people at each race. You know, so we try not to feature the same people more than once per season, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So anyway, so we've yeah. been doing top ten men, top ten women, and uh, Dave asked me today if I thought maybe we could do just a top ten where we do five men, five women. Uh, to kind of like streamline the social media a little bit because he gets he get he thinks that the uh, 
Instagram profile starts to look a little messy because it's all just like flyers, you know, kind of instead of mm-hmm. photos. Uh, what do you guys think? Hmm. I definitely like the countdown because I, you know, I only really follow the Red Hook crit like on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So I like, you know, in that week before the event that there's going to be a bunch of stuff that lets me see, oh, right, I remember that person's name. You know, like I don't, I don't keep up on the fixed gear crit news scene. Right. So it's, it's just it, like, that's my vehicle sure. for being like, oh yeah, like I, these are the names that I remember. Oh my gosh, that person was on quick step. Holy crap. Right. <laughs> like just stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. I yeah, like it's that your, content. It's so your, I'm, I'm fine with the 10. It's, well, it's your usual trade off of, um, you know, highlighting more people or getting more attention on the ones that you do highlight. Right. So that seems to be, you know, so it's, um, I think also one of the concerns is that highlighting, you know, 80 different athletes throughout the course of the season, you know, four races, four top 10 countdowns per race. Mm-hmm. By the time we get to Milan, it's like without trying to re- repeat people, we're really like digging mm. deep. I mean, you if know? you're, and yeah. That's if not, you're... not to try to insult anybody who's on the countdown in Milan. But it is like it does become difficult because it's like you do start telling stories that like are maybe less relevant to the front of the field, but more about like, hey, you know, this person scored their first championship points, you know, and like, can we see them do better? You know, stuff like that, which is still important stories to tell. And like we plan on telling plenty of those. But at the same time, you know, there's also like the issue with just how much content the crit does put out the week before a race. And I think sometimes mm. people do tend to like tune out a little bit. And also mm-hmm. looking at it this way, what you're already doing is a top 20 with, you know, 50% men, 50% women. If you just make it a top 10, 50% men, 50% women. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it, you know, it seems, it seems like a reasonable idea to kind of in increase the focus on athletes you know who do who are in the feed and and be maybe a little bit less overwhelming in terms of what you're you're putting out at the same time i mean of course it's a bummer if you're uh you know um, someone who just got championship points you know when you're getting highlighted in milan and then you're not um but on the other hand i don't know well you know yeah, I mean, the, the great thing about the crit is, like, so many people are also really good. So, so many of the athletes are really good at telling their own stories, you know? And, like, the crit does, it, I think, a good job of, like, kind of, you know, a rising tide sort of lift all boats type of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely a lot of... There's definitely a lot of riders who have gotten a lot of sponsorship and a lot of support through racing the crit you know, and not necessarily, like, winning the crit, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, there's a lot a lot of men and women who are, like, in that top 20, like, scoring championship points, but not really on the podium, but are always kind of, like, there or thereabouts, and, you know, they're telling great stories and just, you know, also really providing a great, like, return on investment to their sponsors, which ultimately is what everybody at the crit is trying to do including the crit you know Mm -hmm. hi everyone greg here uh just breaking in here in the middle of the show because 
August is a special month here on the Wide Angle Podium Network, which is, of course, the podcast network where the Honest Bicycle Program resides. Uh, One reason, of course, is the impending return of cyclocross season. We get very excited about that. But the other one is that it's Wide Angle Podium's Member Drive, Donation Drive Month. So it would really mean a lot to us if uh, you would become a member of Wide Angle Podium. And I'm going to tell you why. Uh, Wide Angle Podium is a donor-supported network, and I think that if you've spent some time on this network at all, then you've noticed that we have some fabulous podcasts here that you can listen to. I mean, there's our nonsense, uh, <laughs> highly amateurish, you know, whatever the heck we do, though, you know, I think we're having a pretty great conversation with uh, Dan, who's who's a pretty uh, fabulous, real cyclist person. Um, but you also have... We got to hang out, you know, other kind of fun things like uh, the Slow Ride podcast. Uh, you've got incredibly great coverage uh, of kind of mountain biking and cyclocross uh, with um, CX, uh, CX Heroes, <laughs> Cross Heroes Radio. There we go with Bill Shiken um, and, and all the great uh, interviews that he does. And that's just, that's not even really scratching the surface, right? Because we've got Lindsay Bayer doing the Durfield recordings. Um, we have the bike shop, CX guys, uh, Mr. David Palin and uh, Scott Dietenbach, uh, who are fantastic and, and who will be spending some time across Crosshairs Radio as well as the season gets rolling. Um, so the point is that this is a network that's, the, just your one-stop shop for pretty much the best cycling podcasts that are out there to listen to and you know none of it is free and there's a lot more work that goes into it uh, than just you know sitting down and putting on our headphones and kind of talking into a microphone for an hour hour and a half um you know <laughs> if you're bill there's a lot of work to do some actual contacting of people and uh, arranged to get them on the show. Uh, you know, Molly Herford and Peter Glassford uh, on um, Consummate Athlete. You know, have to do that too. And, and of course, there's editing the shows, which uh, I can't speak for anyone else, but uh, I know I actually spent, you might not believe it, but I spent a fair bit of time doing that, uh, including little inserts like this. Um, and that's to say nothing of the costs of hosting all of this amazing content on the internet so uh there's a lot of time and and you know we do it because we love it and of course you know you can you can listen for free you know we want it to be available for free that's why it is available for free um but uh it makes a huge huge difference when people are able to contribute to this great content and you know it makes it a little bit easier to set aside that time on a weekend or, or on a work night when you're real tired to do some editing and uh, to line up a, a great guest and, and kind of deal with all that stuff <laughs> and again to pay just to host all this stuff I mean it's a lot and, and most listeners never become donors I mean it might be it might be one percent seriously of of listeners who who actually contribute so don't don't be you know don't be one of the 99 percent in this case in this case you want to be one of the one percent because um that's a one percent that is helping us out uh and i think you know 
being a supportive part of the community. And, you know, I, I think that we make it worse here. You're wild. There's, there's some cool little uh, uh, bonuses you get for being a member at, at different levels. So, so you can go to wideanglepodium.com slash donate to become a member. And you'll see that there are all kinds of levels which you can donate. Uh, you, know, you could do a one-time donation. That's great if that's what you feel like you can do. Um, and it, it, it means a lot, you know, especially if you can send a real chunk of change. Um, but, you know, where the real uh, benefit to us is, is a long-term, if you can commit to being a subscriber uh, to doing a monthly donation level. And we have a bunch of different levels. You know, it starts at $5 a month. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about not, not a heck of uh, a lot of money. And, you know, just like everyone at any donation level, any monthly donation level, you're going to get, um, you're going to get, uh, the bonus content that we make available. That's, that's for everyone. And, you know, as you step up, um, to higher levels, you, you might get more. So, you know, you could do $10 per month, $15 per month, um, 20 it goes all the way up to 50 is our, our kind of button that's available. Uh, again, check it out, wideanglepodium.com slash donate, see what you're getting. You know, you'll be helping us out. I mean, that's the biggest prize of all, right? But say, just looking at, I'm looking at $50, the unicorn status level of commitment. Uh, you're going to get the bonus content. You get a fidget spinner. You get two Wide Angle Podium water bottles. Uh, though right now, during this donor drive, everyone at every level gets a Wide Angle Podium bottle. So, uh, you'll get three. Uh, you get t-shirts every year, you get a sticker pack, you'll get an on-air shout-out and a mystery gift for being in the circle of trust. That's the highest level, but there's still amazingly great stuff that really sticks around even as you kind of go down through the levels, right? So, you know, at 35, you still get your fidget spinner, you still get the uh, sticker pack and the t-shirts and the water bottles. You know, you're going to get your three water bottles. Um, so, so, you know, we really do want to say thank you um, and yeah, thank you for listening. Um, it really makes us feel good, <laughs> you know, to listen. But but do consider uh, supporting us financially uh, as as well. And you know, it, it's really great to be able to spend some, get get some, get a little bit of money, keep things running. And uh, yeah, so so thanks so much. And go to whiteanglepodium.com/slash/donate. So I have a I have a question, um, Dan. Yeah. Because I was wondering. I, so you just mentioned that the so you've got Barcelona in September, and mm-hmm. uh, you've got um, Milan in October. Yep. And I'm sort of I'm sort of wondering. So I know you flew out for London. Are you are you going to be able to find time in your calendar? For those, because I have a feeling you might be a little busy in the fall. <laughs> uh, well, all right. So check 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 this schedule on for size. Um, so this Friday, I am driving up to Richard Sachs' house in Connecticut to get my bikes and my kit and all the other stuff that I need to race this fall. And then mm-hmm. I am driving the next day. I am driving to Virginia to do a two day cross clinic for uh, a DC area <laughs> club called Bikenetic. And then that Monday, 
I am flying to Barcelona. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> uh, I get back on September 5th. Uh, I will probably go back to work in Philly for a few days, and then I will drive to Rochester for the first C1 of the year. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and this is all happening right around the time that my girlfriend is finishing nursing school. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and then... Yeah, I will go back to Milan in October. I'm going to miss Gloucester for the first time in five years. What? Um, I know. <laughs> but, you know, here's the, here's the thing. Here's the thing about Gloucester. I love that race. Is obviously the New England World Championships, mm-hmm. like, hands down, no doubt. But it is a better race to attend than it is to race. I agree 100% with you, actually. (laughs) Having not even done the UCI race. As a spectator, it's a wonderful course. It's beautiful. It's picturesque. There's, like, a great atmosphere. There's a great expo. There's great food. There's great beer. Great racing. But the course itself is, like, unless it rains, it's just, like, these bone-shattering, like, rocks that everybody is flatting on, and it's so dry and so dusty, and it's I still loved racing there (laughs) every time I've raced it, but every year I'm just like, ah, I love going there. I love going to the town, but. It's also underappreciated as to what a, just, it's so hard. It's such a hard course. It's so pedally. You think that, oh, it's dry and rocky and and kind of hard-packed dirt, and it's just going to be all these fast, fast lines everywhere and just there's almost nowhere that's actually fast except yeah, the no pavement grip in any of the corners. So you have to slow down and accelerate, slow down. You, know, like you can't hold speed through <laughs> anything because there's no traction. It's just like this, like moon dust everywhere. That's just like, there's no tread that's been designed to corner through yeah. that. You know, it's like, it, it won't yeah. exist because there's no soil to hold on to. So, I mean, yeah. And, and as, so that's how different the legendary courses in the United States of America are from the legendary courses in Europe. Well, yeah, but here's the thing about Gloucester. Well, yeah, it's true. It's really different. But here's the thing about Gloucester, though. Because of that, because it is true, there's no grip um, on almost any corners. It really puts... Uh, I, I remember like warming up in that course one time, and Anthony Clark, who has his reputation for a long time as um, being kind of a, a, a bull in a china shop, <laughs> I, sort I of a hundred percent confirm that reputation. Yeah, well, yeah, no, no, it's 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 true. And, and he's gotten a lot on, better. He's gotten a yeah. lot better, but, but he's on, still most definitely a bull in a china shop. Sure, sure. But I mean, in terms of raw skill, you know, I was warming up in the course and I'm going down like this off camber kind of sweeping downhill off camber right hand sweeper to the stairs and thinking like, oh, oh. And, and Anthony comes blasting by me uh, and somehow holding grip in his tires and you know this isn't even the guy with the reputation for being the best bike handler uh in in north america or anything like that it it is legitimately i don't understand quite i haven't gotten that ability yet and it is a very very it is a very hard course both because it is actually more pedally than you would think and also because going through those turns fast takes some serious chutzpah um it's it's scary (laughs) Is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's a scary race. 
Yeah, and everyone in, yeah, and it is the New England World Championships people are really excited about. In terms of courses that I find actually uh, fun to race and that cater to my strengths somewhat, I'm, a, I'm much more of a Northampton fan when it comes to New England races, but... That is a nut I have not cracked. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's fun. I wouldn't say, well, mm, the top part of it, that course is fun. The part in the field is uh, sad and heavy. Hard, hard, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it, it, it's a race, I mean, it's, it's Adam Meyerson as a cross racer personified. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like like you ride that course smooth and... on the bottom and bumpy up top. <laughs> <laughs> More just like it's it's a course that like field sprints actually happen on and they like mm-hmm. play out in a very similar like even the way that that start finish stretch is set up, you're just like, wow, this is you really like set this up so that you could sprint. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, and I'm not, I'm not trying to disrespect Adam or anything. It's like it's a great race. It's a great course. He puts on a great event, but it is very much like he set, he sets it up in this way that like definitely favors his skill set. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, it used to, it used to start and finish on the pavement. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember, they stopped I doing that, that when people almost died. I think a few times. I mean. So. But but part of that part of that too might be the fact that it's it's been running for such a long time. Back when, you know, some domestic cross courses really did have like kilometer long pavement sections. Oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And this is this is back when people were like, oh, I'm on 27 millimeter Navi tires. At at 60 psi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cross. Uh, what a weird, what a weird sport. Now we're all like, like oh, so like are you gonna ride the three? Uh, <laughs> riding at sixty psi. Oh yeah, I definitely did that once or twice. I think everyone has. You like that's a mistake you just have to make. That's uh, true. Well, I, I got that mostly out of my system early on. Um, but I, the way I approach things is to tend to I, not necessarily research the hell out of them, but at least kind of get an idea of of what people do before. Doing it. By the time I had my my good Cat Three season, um, I had tubulars and I was running low pressure and all that, and so I was not doing it right, I guess. But uh, I did do the um, I did start out doing that kind of stuff for sure. Yeah, not... I definitely at, at the starting line of a Cat Three race that I was racing in some years back. I definitely heard somebody saying, "Oh yeah, this course is super flat and fast." I'm riding like six. <laughs> And I and I remember thinking like, have you ever been on the internet? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> That's amazing. So uh, just a just a public service announcement um, out there: don't don't run sixty psi even on the flattest of cyclocross courses. Uh, run fifteen for every. Just do what I do. Run fifteen for everything. That's, How uh, much do you weigh again? <laughs> I'm I'm lighter than Matteo, and I don't run fifteen psi. I, I mean, I discovered. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've all. ever run that low. I think the lowest I've ever gone PSI wise is like nineteen for a mud race. I've gone below that, but um, I, 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 it was part of a learning process where I learned that different makes of tubulars behave differently at those kinds of pressures. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And and it's one of those things that you need to kind of get a handle on uh, is how you know just because you run whatever eighteen in this tubular doesn't mean that you can run 18 in that tubular like when i i a couple years ago i was racing mostly on clement mxp tubulars um the the clement tubulars are kind of interesting and weird um they're just a 
they're tubeless basically they're a garden hose essentially with tread on them and i bet and i bet you could get away with like a couple pounds heavier than you uh, lower more air than no you less with you can get away with less because the casing huh. is a little stiff compared to uh-huh. a more traditional oh, okay. uh like handmade tubular the clement ones are at least semi-vulcanized mm-hmm. um and so they're yep. a little stiffer and so you can run them a little lower and you're fine and 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 they have you know they're a little thicker whereas if you're on a challenge tire or something like that especially like the cotton ones but the nylon ones too they're, they're pretty similar um you you can't run them as low because you're not getting as much resistance from the casing. And yeah, you'll just fold the tire. You'll fold the tire, and it's especially mm-hmm. true if you're if if you know it's even more so depending on what you're what kind of tire you're using. Because if you're on a Griffo, maybe you kind of actually want it to fold a little bit, uh, so you keep that tread in contact to some extent. I don't really like Griffos, but if you're running a Challenge Chicane, a tire that is designed for railing grass turns at a million miles per hour, if that tire folds in the middle of a turn, you are on your face. Like, (laughs) you need to run it high enough that it won't fold when you go through a grass turn at, you know, 23 miles per hour leaned over. Or faster. Yeah, I've I've yeah. given up on chicanes and griffos. <laughs> I, I like for, the well, interesting. Well, so what do you? I, I remember you used to like fangos, Dan, but Dan uh, <laughs> fangos kind of fell out of favor with a lot of people. So are you like baby limus for a lot yeah, of stuff? Yeah, I run babies pretty much anything and limus for mud races. I you know honestly, it's uh-huh. like the the gr- the amount of equipment investment it takes to run more than an more than an all around and a mud tread is just like too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like I have two bikes. I have, you know, I have dry wheels and I have mud wheels and that's good. That's it's like I'm I'm fine. Me, the difference for me is not going to be like on a dry day. Like if I was, you know, I'm not going to be out of the top 10 had I, you know, like that result isn't going to be saved by running chicanes. You know what I mean? Right. Like, and, and Griffo is like, that goddamn tread pattern hasn't changed in like 40 years. It's, <laughs> you know, and it's like these little tiny round dots. Like, what are they even supposed to grip? That's not a corner knob. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I when I, people are like, yeah, I just bought these new Griffos. And I'm just like, why? <laughs> why I mean, did you do that right. to yourself? Funny story. First season on Richard Sachs, we only had Griffos. <laughs> Oh, okay. Mud, rain, Whoa. dry, anything, oh, Griffos. And we, you know what? Honestly, like we made it work. It wasn't great, but we made it work. Uh, uh, but like after that season, I was just like, I'm never riding this tread again. <laughs> I've had enough. I've had enough. <laughs> Even like, I, man, I, that makes me actually feel really bad though that you have wet wheels and dry wheels and i somehow have ended up with three sets of wheels uh, i will it is because i had a set of wheels i was going to use for my road bike and then i didn't have a job so i didn't put a new free hub on them or whatever and so now i'm like well now i have this extra set but it is like why do i have a set for chicanes and a set for baby lobbyses and a set for mud tires it's kind of stupid it's, but well i have an answer to that greg like <laughs> and this is this is meant in in all you know positivity, but like Dan is like really 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 strong, and he can kind of like gloss over the difference between the ideal tire and a good tire for those conditions, with 
his skills, right? And like for for Cross, you know, like you're a you're a you're a three. I don't I'm remember a two. You're I'm a two. Two. Damn it! But like I'm gonna be in the same field as Dan at UCI races. Yeah, and 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 you need every advantage you can get. You need the you need perfect equipment. Uh oh. You know, and I think that's and I think that's okay. That's not what I have. Is perfect equipment. <laughs> but well, you okay. need the right tires, which make a huge difference. <laughs> I have yeah. I'll have a couple things up on Dan because I'll have the right tires, always, <laughs> and a carbon fork. So uh... hey man, you know, honestly. I I have a th- I I think here here here's what I'll say. You know all those ti- all those flats people get at Gloucester. Mm-hmm. Knock on wood, I haven't flatted a Gloucester yet. What does that have to do with a steel fork? Uh, suspension. Duh. Oh, okay. Have you ever all seen right. those? Have you ever seen my fork blades flex <laughs> under braking? It's like it's like literally an inch and a half of movement. No, I, okay. I remember. I remember being at a race in Connecticut, and I don't was. It might have been. It was someone forever ago, like before you were on the team. So it might have been like, was this was this guy's name Will Dugan? Yeah. Oh God, Will Dugan. That oh, that's a blast from the past. Wow. I got and I I yeah, remember this like steep like down and turn. I think it was the East Hampton Cross Race where I won a spooky Skeletor. Oh my God. And I remember him breaking into this turn and just watching the fork go backwards. So okay. Thankfully, they don't do the do part, but they do go backwards still. Yeah. Oh yeah. See, that's what I was wondering about was the because I do have um this is my complaint with my bike, which is a Richie Switch Cross, which is beautiful and wonderful and it's excellent in every way except um the fork is so soft that I get terrible brake shutter. Like I can't running. Well, I so yeah at the at the at the risk of you know not or in order to make sure that it, it doesn't sound like I'm like smack talking sax frames or, or steel that has definitely happened with every like canty carbon fork no, i've no, used no. that even ones that do have like oversized no no i've got a ridley doesn't do it at all um i'm trying to sell that ridley. i have the same get, fork get does touch. It. but that richie so so uh what was i saying oh yeah so i i have mini v's on the bike because it's intolerable with uh canties because Which canties i can't did you have uh, I think I used a few different ones. I tried, uh, whatever the Tektro, not the Oryx or whatever, but the, mm-hmm. or maybe it was the Oryx, but also the nicer ones. And also the CR720s, the wide ones that have no power, they, right, they right. still cause it. They still cause the fork shatter Dang. on that. So it, it's, oh. and it's like a known thing. If you talk to other people fork the fork shatter on that bike is really bad. So it was like, I couldn't. Maybe I'm just not good enough at uh, braking. <laughs> I I don't think that's but. the issue. I definitely think, you know, I I think the canny brake chatter thing is like, it's like you have to have the right brakes on the right fork with the pads towed in the right way, and it's like it's you know, and all those things vary from you know, like you change one thing in that equation and you have to change everything, you know. Yeah. So it's like figuring that out it's like if many if many of these solve that issue for you then the issue has been solved and it's, like <laughs> you know you obviously don't need more input on that yeah yeah i mean the, the, you know it's 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 frustrating because uh the mini v's we're getting deep into the weeds of cross nerdery but the mini v's <laughs> are powerful but the clearance is not good which means if your wheel gets a little bit out of true you're you're toast and um, um 
the I, I think I feel the modulation is not so great on on mini V's. Well, if you're looking for a break recommendation, I would say the TRP Revo X's are probably the best canty ever invented. Hmm. They do look nice too. They do look nice, and you know they are fairly reasonably priced. I think the aluminum versions are like, I think a hundred bucks for the set, and they come with like aluminum and carbon pads, which is sweet. All right, people. Well, there's your recommendation. I. I agree that those are awesome brakes. I had them for a good while. The only problem I had with them is that you couldn't really like lower the spring tension. I mean, and without without like getting like real deep and like taking apart and like unbending. No, the they have a they have a spoke ten. Uh, they have a tension screw. Yeah, they've got a, they've got a screw. I wanted I, I wanted a real light feel because my hands are. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I those I I do think that the of course uh, TRP is Tetro, which I don't think is technically euro but they <laughs> they are kind of euro brakes and i i just to judge from the the stock brakes on this ridley that it came with they, those euros like their really stiff springs because it was it was a serious hand workout uh the stock brakes on that bike uh to, like, they whatever like they're rza brakes or whatever yeah or or zornink or whatever yeah, they're their really real deep in the weeds now guys <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, what, that's what cyclocross is all about is, uh, is you know people think cross oh yeah run what you brung or whatever i but, mean uh, sure yeah absolutely i mean that's part of i mean that's part of the fun of bike racing is like nerding out on on gear um, yeah it's true so. and cyclocross provides probably more opportunity than almost anything else except maybe for uh mountain biking to nerd out uh, i don't know Un- until you're on a track racing like, facebook group or forum where people are talking about the machining process to create the different tooth profiles oh, but that's just like that the nars durace track chain rings have versus other ones that, that, then that's just the narcissism of small differences that's <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe. But but to say that on like a fixed gear, you can feel what chain ring you have on ba- because of the tooth profile might be like a step beyond. That is that cantilever is nerdery. Definitely, I've I've never thought about that. That's pretty. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about my chain. To be perfectly honest, I'm just like, whatever. Is it stretched? No. Okay, we're good. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty bad. The only thing the. Uh, uh, the only the only i only spend more time thinking about these things now because i've i've been realizing that uh oh shit cyclocross means that all of my stuff gets ruined way faster than it otherwise would cross ruins everything around <laughs> yeah. me very true very so. true uh, that's like winter like winter bike commuting if you ever lived for six years in the northern midwest uh, well i mean it gets pretty gross up here too no bike commute for me now, though. Sad. Mm-hmm. Sad. We're we're sorry you're having physical difficulties again, Greg. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not physical difficulties, actually. Though, despite the fact, I mean, that is like a seemingly constant part of my bike experiences. Greg is experiencing physical difficulties of some kind, but no, I I I have a car commute just because I work far enough away that it's the only kind of practical way of getting to work right now so alas 
condolences. My job is a seven-minute yeah. bike ride away from my house. That's the way to do it. The problem is when it's a little further away, um, as I've learned, that extra riding does, even though you're going easy, does cut into your training. Like, I don't yeah. want to be like, I was always like, oh, junk miles, you know, junk miles is bullshit. And it kind of is because it's, 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 it's a pejorative term, but my total volume is quite a bit lower than what it was a couple of years ago, but it's all quality pretty much. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not as sharp quite yet as I was at like the end of August two years ago, but I'm stronger. So... It, there's something nice. to it on like not a very you know when it comes to training nerdery like my ctl isn't particularly high but um ctl is one of those things where you oh, CTL can is bullshit. focus really hard on it and it cannot actually be correlated to you gotta be real careful with all that stuff it can also easily be fake news does 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 Richard let you guys put uh power meters on those uh on those bikes yeah, we're sponsored by stages dude Oh, nice. Sweet. Yeah, we have uh, power meters on both bikes, and uh, we're actually using the Stages Dash computers uh, this ah, this sweet. season. So, yeah, that thing records a packet every uh, four times a second, same as the SRM head units. That's, That's awesome. what you want. Half the so, price. <laughs> yeah. It, Spons- well, sponsor it's plug. A, it's a lot less than half the price of uh, those... Uh, Oh, oh, you mean compared to the SRM head unit? Not to mention yeah, the power yeah, meter yeah. as a thing. It was yeah. like all together. It's way, way less. Oh, yeah. That, I, the, the PC-8 is like $800 and it's not even waterproof. Oh my God. That's so expensive. Oh, jeez. Everything waterproof? SRM that's what I, so I, That's just what I've read. I've, I've read it's not waterproof. Oh, well, far be it from me to just besmirch the name of uh, SRM. We This is unconfirmed. This is unconfirmed. This is... <laughs> This is a sponsored, a stages sponsored racer saying this, so you know, <laughs> take it with a grain of salt, I guess. But uh, still, you know, I mean, I've got a, I've got a stages on my road bike after a couple of years. It works. So yeah, the those, the sax bikes are actually kind of interesting to look at because, you know, you've got the steel frame making being made more or less the same way that he's done it since the '70s when he started, uh, and it's 60s. got the candle. 60s oh boy i think so yeah it's been a been a while he might he might be mad that you said that though oh really he might also not listen to this there's actually there's actually (laughs) no way he will listen to this unless i tell him to listen (laughs) he'd he'd be mad about saying that he makes them the same way or mad about this this uh the 70s oh the 70s part oh okay i mean he won't actually he won't actually be mad i'm just i know this is this is me like kind of teasing you and him at the same time sure. when I tell him to listen to it. <laughs> he seems he seems like the kind of guy and I'm just going based off of people that I know who grew up in Bayonne, but who like as a as a way of displaying affection, like get sort of pretend mad at people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But, but like, I was going to say joke around. I was going like, to say a grin on his face, you know. Like yeah, he'll, yeah. he'll like scold you with a grin on with a grin on. <laughs> right. So, and so about, I was gonna... about things that don't matter. Also, right, right, right. Well, I, <laughs> like I feel how like long that's... he's actually been building bikes, <laughs> yeah. or, or what the wait list is. You know. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, let's not even get started on that. No, but the um, I mean, it's fine. The, whatever people want the bikes, so they wait for them. It's fine. Um, so the the thing that's kind of fun about seeing you know 
a sax bike in whatever 2016 2017 is you know you've got the steel frame it's very old school you've got the cantilever brakes and it's just everything else is super modern like one by drivetrain and you know i think you've got your carbon wheels and and all that stuff and it's uh you know it's it's a nice little um mix of things i mean and you don't get as yeah um, i think i think richie like you know i Richie's building the most cutting edge bike he knows how to make, if that makes sense. Like, he's not mm-hmm. trying, he's not a retro grouch. He doesn't care about, he's, he doesn't care about being retro. He just cares about doing the best thing that he can do, which for him is lugs and steel, because that's what he knows how to do best. You know, he's like, that's that's the thing that's driving him is making the best possible thing he can make, you know, and he's always right. kind of like pushing towards that like perfect frame or perfect bike in a, in a craftsman sense, you know. Right. And that's also, you know, that's now right, that's what people want when they're getting a Richard Sachs bike and you're going to get the best damn lug steel bike ever. Oh when yeah, you get a sax like so. He, it, yeah, it's a great. Have bike. you have you guys seen that movie Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Yeah, no. he's seen it about five times. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I was when I was gonna say that like he sort of reminds me, you know, like Jiro's not there asking whether or not sushi is the best food. He's just making the best sushi. Yeah, right. absolutely. He, Maybe Jiro is asking whether or not sushi is the best food. I don't know. He, beside the point, I don't think he asked it in the movie. Yeah. Right. So right. <laughs> But yeah, absolutely. He's definitely one of those, you know, and and to that end, you know, he also draws he draws inspiration from like-minded people, people that are like singularly focused on a pursuit of perfection, whatever that perfection may be, you know, custom guitars, watchmaking, whatever. He like he sees kindred spirits in those people rather than in the bike industry, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like he doesn't really he doesn't really see what he's doing in what Specialized is doing, for instance. But at the same time, he will absolutely say that, like, oh, yeah, those are probably great bikes. Like, they've been making a lot of bikes for a very long time. They've probably got it figured out. You yeah. know? That, I mean, that definitely kind of comes out in in just the sort of partnerships that I've casually observed, you know? Like, facts like, yeah, this this small watch company and this, like, sort of handmade clothing company i can't remember the names of them offhand but like yeah they really seem to be yeah different areas but similar approaches rather than other bike stuff yeah well i mean it's part of the reason why the sponsorships last so long is because like they see what he's doing as well and like see what the similarity is i mean let's let's be honest like specialized in richard Sachs are are not really in the same kind of business you know they're, no. they're they're both selling bikes but just to completely different customers and at completely different volumes you know and with a completely different um i'm not sure what the word i'm looking for is but it, it, it's it's a different it, it's it's a product f- people want different things out of those products totally. yeah like Abs- like absolutely. not like the similar thing is that they're two wheels and maybe you can go do a cyclocross race on them, but they're not really the same kind of product. 
Sure. It's like, you know, if we want to continue the watch metaphor, it's like comparing Swatch to like some, you know, it's let's like comparing Swatch to like someone like Ian, you know, who's, yeah. you know, just like literally making one-off things by hand our Boston. friend our friend uh ian Schoen of Schoen design of uh go check out his pens or watches or his slam that stem bearing covers yes i, ha- I have many of those <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't know that that's him which i find really funny i know it's amazing it's like amazing. he'll be he'll be hanging out at a race and i'll be like oh did you talk to the slam that stem guy and people are like oh he's here Who, who's he and i was like <laughs> You just talked to him like he was you standing next to him. <laughs> like he really doesn't advertise himself well. <laughs> well, I th- no, he does just as not as like I am Ian. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I'm this guy. It's more like sure. slam that stem is its own kind of thing. And oh, by the way, it's him. Right. Yeah, so. absolutely. But yeah, it's like it's like comparing those two things. You know, it's like they're both technically making a thing that tells time, but they're like not remotely doing the same thing right yeah exactly yeah, yeah i look forward to seeing what uh i was actually talking to ian on a ride recently um and he was talking about like what is kind of bill of materials is versus what is you know and it's like it's it's uh it's hard you know like he's because he's spending so much time on the watches even 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 selling one at you know whatever i don't even remember i'm not sure like how many he's sold or, or whatever because it's not something he's doing at like a, even for him like a major volume as far as i understand but you know it, he can sell it and clear a profit on the bill of goods but he's he's right now like still putting so much time so much you know meticulous effort into making it that he's like i don't know if he's like i don't know if i can ever make money on these but they're really cool yeah <laughs> i really I'd, like doing I'd... it I think the price he mentioned off the top of his head was something like 5k. Yeah. Which is about how much a Richie frame goes for, so. Well, I mean there's, you know, and Richie could sell those given that there's that long wait list. He could sell them for more, a lot more. Yeah, I think he's actually, you know, and this is unofficial, but you know, uh. we've sort of like kind of talked or he's sort of been talking about like you know, he's in the process of kind of like clearing the existing wait list. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. if, if you try to place an order with him right now, you kind of like can't basically. Yeah. He's not taking new orders because what he wants to do is kind of like clear the wait list and then just go into a way of building frames where it's more like he'll do like this month, he'll make like four size 54s and then put them for sale and people can either buy them or not. And then next month he'll do like four fifty sixes, and people can buy them or not, you know, and and just basically do small batches of frames and sell them that way because, hmm. I, you know, and and this is me interpreting rather than him saying, but I think he's like kind of over the uh, the process of like dealing with the customers, <laughs> 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 you know, like it's 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 really. I think it's hard for him because he's he's not a custom frame builder. Like people call him a custom frame builder, but that's not what he is. You know, he is a made to measure frame builder, which is very different because it's like you order a frame, you give him your measurements and he builds you a bike. You have no input on 
how right. what what interpretation he uses to like create the frame with those measurements like he he knows what he's gonna do but you're not he's not the type of guy where you're like yeah you know like i really want like a 72 and a half head tube and a 73 seed tube angle he's like no you're gonna get a richard Sachs head tube and seed tube or like <laughs> yeah. if you really if that's really what you want then like come down to connecticut and like make your own goddamn bike you know like he's, <laughs> sure. he's not he's not in the business of building people their like custom dream bikes and that's part you know like part of why there's like a link on his website to like other frame builders you know that he right. like admires because oftentimes people come to him and he's like no i don't i i'm not gonna build that but like here's a list of people that probably would yeah, yeah. you know like he turns down a lot of business and just because it's not what he is or what he does right it's like this you know this like neither of us will be happy with what happens like exactly if we continue this relationship like right you'll be you'll be mad at me I'll be mad at you. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that's the problem with the waitlist is he has these like pretty long drawn out relationships with these people and it's like he just wants to build bike. Yeah. You know, he doesn't like I dealing with the people that buy his bikes because they are very expensive is like it's pretty difficult because you know, when people are spending that kind of money on a thing, they tend to feel slightly entitled to it. Right. That's the funny thing about paying a lot of money for an expert to do something for you, is that as soon as you start to do that, you also start to think that you know more than the expert. Well, right. it depends on who you are, right? And like, yeah, or or that you know what you want, which you maybe don't necessarily because you don't have I, experience. I, I say this having been an expert who people have given a lot of money in order to allegedly use my expertise and then have them just tell me what they want me to do instead. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, no, it's, it's for sure. It's a, it's a thing that happens, you know, but you know what it makes me think of, you know, like why I kind of get that approach, even, you know, from the other side is do you ever go into like, uh, a sandwich shop? that's like not a, you know, not like a real sandwich shop, but like some kind of chain, like a, uh, a subway or some other uh not even this but like i went into this this sandwich shop that was a, a chain of some kind and they literally give you like a piece of paper and a golf pencil and on this piece of paper is like the various parts of a sandwich it's like a parts list for a sandwich mm-hmm. and you're supposed to check off what you want in your sandwich and it's like I came here to give you money to make me a sandwich. Like, I don't know what I want in my sandwich. You're the expert. Like, what? Like, I could make I could make this sandwich at home. You know, like, you know, right? To me, like, whereas I feel like if you go into a real sandwich shop, it says, this is what a roast beef sandwich is. This is what you know what that kind of reminds turkey me of? sandwich is. This is what a meatball sub is, you know? You know what that kind of reminds me of? What? You know when you're when you're flying somewhere, you're taking a plane, and the pilot comes on the intercom to tell you that they're about to oh, land. Yeah. Okay, I know where this is going. I saw this. And, on and Twitter. the pilot is like, <laughs> "And uh, we'll be landing at uh, in Washington D.C. at about uh, eight forty-two p.m. Uh, the weather is a warm eighty-three degrees." And you go, "Well, oh, that's cool. I didn't think to check the weather before." <laughs> yeah, eighty-three degrees, and they're like, 
and uh, the winds are out of the north northeast about twelve knots, and you're like, okay, I don't really know how I would use that information. And visibility is about eight and a half miles. Okay, I'm not landing the plane, dude. You are. Don't know what you expect me to do with this information. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that was a good tweet, Matteo. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Thanks. I'm glad I got to elaborate on it. <laughs> That's what podcasts are for: is elaborating on elaborating our Twitter feeds. Perfect. <laughs> it's like it's like I got into an argument with this guy, and let me explain in a venue where he has no opportunity to defend himself <laughs> why he's wrong and I'm right. And uh, I have the microphone, so I'm the voice of authority. Man, that makes me want to start a podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of internet arguments that I like avoid because I don't want to hear back from the other person. Uh, I, that's, the, that's the problem. <laughs> and I this have. solves that problem entirely. No, that's a very... That's got to be the title of this episode. <laughs> internet arguments that I avoid or... Because <laughs> I don't want to hear back yeah. from the other person. Well, I, that's that's the th- that's the thing I've been realizing is someone will post something. I'm like, oh, it's so wrong. But when you tell someone that they're so wrong, people don't take kindly to that. And sometimes you're wrong about them being wrong, but a lot of the time you're not. And and but but that they're you know they just don't realize that you are the yeah. smarter person. And <laughs> I mean, it's generally every interaction that I consider having, I like my first qualifier is like, is the outcome going to be positive? And if I'm pretty sure that the answer to that is no, then I just avoid having that interaction. And that goes for like motorists when I'm on a bike, you know, or like angry customers when I'm at work or yeah. people on Twitter or yeah pretty much anything like anytime i'm gonna interact with somebody i'm like is this gonna have a positive outcome all right you know yeah mm-hmm. i've gotten better but i still make mistakes just today on twitter not twitter on facebook someone posted a thing being like the eclipse was overhyped and and i got annoyed <laughs> and said so <laughs> but <laughs> uh i mean it was a little overhyped <laughs> But it was it's just two globes going past each other. What's the big deal? I'm like, dude, I looked at it. It was really sweet. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, it was the awesome. next, next one is 2024, and it's going to be closer to us. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. Yeah. We're, we're, uh, don't take my hotel room, please, because we're already... Time to start my doom metal band called In the Path of the Totality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I already have a plan formed, but I'm not going to tell you guys about it, because I don't want you <laughs> taking my hotel room. Uh, all right. You're just going to get a head start on that totality traffic. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just going to move. I'm like going to buy a house in the path of the totality. Oh, that's a... Airbnb it out if Airbnb is still around in eight years. You should track those property values over the next few years and see what happens. I mean, wow. it's going Matt, through some... Matt, yeah, uh, that just got oh. really dark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going up through like northern Vermont. You ought to be able to get a cheap house up there. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Yeah. I think you well, were saying something. Greg. Was I? Was I saying yeah. a thing? Was I saying I think a thing? You were. I, you know, I was gonna get done with this episode and go glue tires. I don't know if that's happening now. It's like nine o'clock. Uh, yeah, I gotta build up a bicycle. I gotta race tomorrow. I kind of wanted to sit on my couch. I was gonna glue Wait, up some baby limuses though, because I sent some tires off to Tire Alert in Florida like three weeks ago. I have not heard anything from them. They have they have arrived at their. Uh, large, sophisticated, modern facility, facility rather, 
in Pomp's civility <laughs> in Pomp's I, I finished this beer like forever ago and and yet <laughs> in Palm Springs, Florida. They're sitting there, they're probably on a shelf, they're probably waiting to get uh uh you know, fixed up and whatever, but but uh, if I'm gonna have tubulars for this coming weekend of not cyclocross, they're either gonna be specialized terras, which are a mud tire, or maybe limuses that I have yet to glue, so I gotta do that. Matty, what are you racing tomorrow? Uh, I'm gonna race at the Trucks of Town Velodrome tomorrow. Oh, okay. Right. Oh, good old T Town. Mm-hmm. And then Friday is the last, uh, the last pro night. Cool, cool. Good luck. Uh, Thanks. yeah. Good luck with your tire gluing, Greg. I I hope uh, your short track race goes well. <laughs> yeah. Well, good luck with the uh, good. You know, your upcoming cyclocross season that will not begin until after September first. And I uh, hope we'll see. You. Hope we'll see you at some of those uh, races. I'm going to be doing some of those New England UCI races. Maybe I'll venture out to Supercross. So, Supercross is good. Uh, if you want to make even a longer drive, come to DC. That's the best one. Oh, I really want to do it. I think the timing is going to be difficult, but I, I, I feel like I really should. I really should go to DCCX. It'd be. Uh, I have a standing, have a standing date, date with Bill to record in his basement on DCCX. But you're welcome to join, and we'll have like a mega podcast oh god that's tempting oh yeah <laughs> the perfect me, storm me and dan langlois are going to return to the basement and uh you know you might have to I, change your name to dan legally just for the night but i, I would also have to like really restrain my urge to talk so much but no i don't know i think i think that you, i think you guys could can can more than hold your own against me so <laughs> it's fine figure it out yeah yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, well, we should wrap up. It's been a long one. Um, so you can follow Dan on Twitter. He says things there sometimes. Uh, and Instagram. And same, Instagram. Same username, Dan Chabanoff. Making it easy for people. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Absolutely. That's, that's good branding. <laughs> that's that's all we have now are brands. We don't have names anymore. Just brands. <laughs> Well, that's why it's that's why it's still my name because I'm I don't want to be a brand. <laughs> that's that's probably that's probably that's good. That's good. Uh, all right, so we're gonna you know oh you know what we didn't do our member drive. I will I will drop in a thing. I guess look. Let's edit that. We'll 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 fix, we'll fix that, that in post. post. But let me tell you guys because you've already you've now heard this already. Um, us going on about uh, becoming a wide angle podium donor, but. But, you know, do it um, because most people don't and it makes a big difference. Like even that $5 a month, like it makes a big difference and, and it makes us feel appreciated and loved and it makes it easier to put in the very real work that goes behind the scenes. You know, it's not just this hour and a half of us yammering at, at you. That's the fun part. But, you know, we've got to edit the shows. I've got to edit the shows. Uh, we've got... <laughs> We, you know, there's there's uh, writing up the copy for the shows. There's just behind the scenes wrangling and uh, uploading. And there's, you know, on the network side, there's paying for the server space. You know, things go into it. Well, you, you'll have heard about this in my uh, uh, dropped-in uh, plug and plea. But uh, be a hero. Be a hero. Wideanglepodium.com slash donate. All right, you guys. Thanks so much. It's been really really great time chatting with you Dan oh thanks for having me uh, yeah this is great uh, I always, I always yeah. enjoy talking to you guys so <laughs> hopefully we'll do it again sometime 
Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to have you back sometime. I think we definitely will. All right. All right. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>